Happy Memorial Day, everyone. Okay, I guess you'll have one and I won't, so no. We're glad you're with us, and uh, we're all the people that don't have campers. <laughs> so, and those that are watching us on campers, you're not really camping, all right? It's a living room with wheels, so, but we hope you enjoy it anyway. So, no, we're glad you're with us, and uh, we are continuing our series uh, on uh, the thread. Every book of Scripture has one theme in common, and that is look forward to Jesus. Would you say look forward to Jesus? Old Testament looking forward primarily to his first coming in a manger and Old Testament and New Testament to his second coming as the King of Kings. And uh, today's message has a lot to say about our current culture. We're going to do a deep dive into some of the horrific things that we've been dealing with. But uh, before we go there, I want to go ahead and do a summary of where we've been. And last weekend I told you we would do uh, hand motions, and I thought as my gift to you for coming to church on a holiday weekend, I'll do the motions and you can sit. <laughs> All right? So um, here's what, the, but, but be ready because we will do them in the future. So the first week we talked about creation. So we said creation, you think of like the sun coming up. Oh, you're doing them anyway. <laughs> if you start doing them, I'm going to have you do them. So just watch. Creation gets flooded. Say creation gets flooded. All right, then we said the family's road to the promised land. All right, say the family's road to the promised land. Now that family, God handpicked the family, the patriarch, the founding father of that family. His name started with an A. His name was, he had a son, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons who were the heads of the tribes of Israel. And then Joseph was responsible, his story, getting them to Egypt. They were there for four centuries until they were finally uh, released from their slavery. But we took a break from Mother's Day and we talked about, say, women heroes. And we took a World War II version of women hero. Here is Rosie the Riveter. So there you go. All right, we can do it. Whoops, that was quick. Put Rosie back up. There you go. All right. And Rosie looks like she's cute, but you don't want to make her mad. You know what I'm saying? So, but anyways. Uh, then uh, we talked about Joshua and Judges. So that was conquer and settle. Say conquer and settle. They conquered the promised land. Then they settled it. The judges ruled. Last week when we talked about we three kings. Okay, I'm doing it. You say it, right? We three kings. And those kings were Saul, David, and Solomon. This week, we're talking about divided we fall. So, ready? Creation gets flooded. The families rode to the promised land. Women heroes. Conquer and settle. We three kings. Saul, David, Solomon. Very good. And then divided we fall. Okay, before summer's over, you're going to do that in your sleep, all right? So, um, this weekend, the events happen around 931 B.C. So, think of David around 1,000 B.C., roughly 1,000 years before Christ. So, we've moved forward. And if you have the CLC app, you can follow along with us or you can take some notes. But a phrase that uh, kind of coined it several years ago, would you say, sin makes you stupid? In fact, look at somebody else and tell them, sin makes you stupid. And all of us have that experience. We have sinned and we said, man, what did I do that for? What was I thinking? And there's an and to that because and, sin takes you farther than you wanted to go, makes you stay longer than you wanted to stay, and makes you pay more than you wanted to pay. Just ask Adam and Eve or any person in this room. It takes us farther than we thought. 
makes us stay longer than we plan to stay. It makes a mess of things, and we pay more than we thought we'd pay. And so a great example, a bad example, a sad example of that, uh, is we pick up the story. Uh, David passed on his kingdom to Solomon. We saw Solomon's mixed reign there and the way he ended uh, badly. And 1 Kings eleven forty three says Solomon died and was buried in the city of his father David, and his son Rehoboam reigned in his place. Say Rehoboam. Because it's going to get confusing as you read the Bible. There's Rehoboam and Jeroboam. And Rehoboam is, is, is one. Jeroboam is another. Uh, Rehoboam is uh, to be king. All of Israel came there. And uh, in verse 1, it says, Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. The entire nation, all 12 tribes, they come there. The, the kingdom is passing from Solomon now to his son Rehoboam. And so he asks advice of the elders, and, he, and they say to him, your father made our yoke hard. Now, therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke, which he put on us, and we will serve you. Dad was harsh. He was a taskmaster. So another verse says he went to the young men, his peers, his friends, and said, okay, what do you say I should do? Because the old guys say, lighten up and we'll be loyal to you. And the young guys who didn't know what they were talking about said, oh, you know what? Teach them a lesson. Let them know you've got more in your little finger. Your dad did in his whole body. Literally, they say that. And they said, tell them that your dad would discipline with whips. You're going to discipline with the scorpions. The heat is on. So that's what he tells them. And so... Tragically, verse 16, when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king saying, what portion do we have in David or David's direct ancestors? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse, that's David and then Solomon. To your tents, O Israel, now look after your own house, David. So Israel departed to their tents. So they're talking about Rehoboam, who is the son of Solomon, who's the son of David. But as for the sons of Israel, the other tribes, all right, David was the tribe of Judah, all right, for the other 11 tribes who lived in the cities of Judah, Rehoboam reigned over them. But then King Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was over the forced labor, and all Israel stoned him to death. Let me stop there for a second. So Rehoboam says, I'm going to rule you harder. The people of Israel, the other 11 tribes, say, then we're out of here. You can have Judah to yourself. And so he decides, okay, well, I was going to be tough on them, so I'm sending the guy who's over my forced labor throughout Judah to let them know there's a new sheriff in town. And what they do to that guy? They stone him to death. So Rehoboam knows that's not a good sign. King Rehoboam made haste to mount his chariot to flee to Jerusalem. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. It came about when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, not Rehoboam, Jeroboam, that they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. None but the tribe of Judah followed the house of David. So here we have a split short of a civil war where the, the kingdom of Israel that was one nation, 12 tribes under Saul, and then David and then Solomon and all 12 tribes gathered together at Shechem. They were going to make Rehoboam king. He makes this stupid declaration from his own sinful nature. And the other 11 tribes say, we're out of here. Judah, you can have your king. And that was the birth of two nations now, or the, or the, the death of the nation of Israel. And now it's Judah and it's Israel. The second thought is that culture creep destroys righteousness in a nation. And uh, in 2 Kings, we have an example of that. In verse 1, it says Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, king of Judah. And he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Hephzibah. 
He did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abomination of the nations whom the Lord dispossessed before the sons of Israel. According to the nations that surrounded them, the culture that surrounded them. If you go back to when Israel was leaving Egypt from slavery, God said, I'm going to give you a promised land. It's the land of Canaan, and it's inhabited by Canaanites. Different groups of people, tribes, nations. Uh, there were Hittites and Jebusites and Perizzites and all of them. I want, and when you go there, I want you to drive them completely out. Otherwise, you'll learn their ways. Otherwise, their culture will creep into your own and you'll be compromised. And when you read the book of Joshua, you find that when they divided up the nation of Israel into the 12 tribes, 12 states, if you will, that it said over and over again, and they did not completely drive the people from the land. Did not completely drive the people from the land. They compromised. When you compromise in righteousness, you give Satan a foothold for further damage. And so we see then that as the nation progressed, now you've got kings yielding to the, the culture around them. Culture was creeping in. And the things that, that Manasseh did were horrific. According to the abominations of the nations uh, around them, he built all sorts of places of idol worship and to pagan gods. He built altars for the host of heaven. And it says he made his son pass through the fire. That is a phrase that means that he literally took his infant son and placed him on an altar and offered him as a burnt sacrifice to the god Molech. He made his son pass through the fire. He practiced witchcraft, used divination, dealt with mediums and spiritists, with psychics, if you will. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. How does a nation whose people is the Lord get to a place where their very king commits child sacrifice? And before we get too self-righteous, though, we can fast forward and ask a similar question. How does a nation who one of its founding documents is that we believe that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator? We're a nation that our founding document says we believe in a creator. We believe that we are his creation. How does a nation who believes in the creation of each human being kill over 60 million of those creation, those created beings before they're born in the form of abortion. I mean, you can see like the, the parallels of modern day. And one thing that's important to, to, in verse 15, God says, they've done evil in my sight and have been provoking me to anger since the day their fathers came from Egypt, even to this day. And that's so 400 years before that. Culture creep destroyed Israel, destroyed Judah. And a little bit of a history lesson is important here. So if I could go ahead and kind of draw it out. Um, you have Israel, 12 tribes. So this is 931 B.C. All right, so the nation splits. Since this is up, we'll go, that's the northern nation. And they are called the nation of Israel. Say Israel. Okay, north is Israel. And the southern nation is called, very good. Here's something interesting about these two nations. Uh, it's 931 B.C. And uh, Israel would fall 209 years later in 722 B.C. 
Judah, the southern kingdom, lasted much longer to 345, or 586 B.C. Sorry. 345 years. What's the difference? Why did this one last over 130 years longer? I would suggest to you that righteousness exalts a nation, the Bible says. Sin is a disgrace to any people. And so in the, in the history of Israel, there were no righteous kings. Did evil like his father before him. Did evil like his father. Did evil like his father over and over and over again. In the history of Judah, there were eight righteous kings that led revivals in the land, some of them one right after the other. And I believe that those eight righteous kings are the reason for the buoyancy of the nation, and it fell later. It lasted longer. It endured farther in history. So if indeed culture creep destroys righteousness in a nation, I'd like to suggest to you that the shoe fits today. What a horrific tragedy to hear of the horrors in an elementary school in Uvalde, Texas. I cannot imagine the parents and the families in the town that 19 little kids went to school and they'll never come home and two teachers on top of that. Horrors that never should. When I was a kid, school shooting was not a phrase. And yes, it may be, whether well, it's Uvalde, you can go to Buffalo, Texas. I mean, in fact, when I was looking it up this morning, make sure I had the spelling right. Uh, there was a shooting last night in Knoxville, Tennessee, and no one was killed, but nine teens and young adults were injured in a shootout downtown. And then the next story was a, a 30-year-old man who killed his father at a rest stop. I mean, it's just, it's just the Bible is coming true that said that the closer we get to the time of Christ, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be at the coming of the Son of Man. Go back to Noah and the flood. What is one of the things, one of the key characteristics that God said he destroyed the world and the world was filled with violence. And God regretted that he had made mankind. And so it was his do-over. I don't want to go back and re-preach that message. And while there will be much debate over the kind of laws and interventions that are necessary, I believe the until we deal with the root cause, we will always have this kind of heartache. And while better laws can be helpful, I don't put my trust in the outcome of laws because they get debated and twisted and whatnot. And, and let's just do a quick a sociological experiment. How many of you have ever seen a speed limit sign and then you went faster than that? I do all the time. Most of the time it's like, I, I know I can get away with this much. And sometimes I say, I hope I can get away with this much. <laughs> but we just showed very quickly that laws are not a fail-safe way to control good people, much less bad people. I believe, I, I will point to you, I will go past that debate to a, a deeper, to me it's not up for debate, a deeper explanation for the problems that are destroying our culture and our society. It goes beyond politics, it goes beyond mental illness, 
It's evil and it's godlessness that's destroying our nation. And uh, Joyce and I were talking not long ago and it really hit me. What our world is, what our nation is experiencing and has in decreasing measure, as it decreases, violence and perversion and ungodliness is increasing. Let me ask you, if, if everyone in our nation had a greater dose of this in their life from the inside out, would it not do away with the things that we're so troubled by now? If everyone in the United States had, had a deeper sense of love for themselves and other people, a greater sense of peace, mental peace, emotional peace, joy. If everyone in the United States were more patient, kind, they had a stronger sense of goodness and gentleness and they were faithful in their lives and they had a greater sense of self-control. If all of those qualities were ours in an increasing measure, would it not be the antidote for all of the troubles that we're reading about? Those are diametrically opposed to the phrase school shooting, to the phrase domestic terrorist. And those are the fruit of the Spirit. You see, as a nation turns its back on God, and, and we'll look here and we'll see that some of these godly kings still made plenty of mistakes, but their overall orientation and desire was for righteousness. And we can look back over our history and see plenty of mistakes, but the intent of, of the original documents we were founded upon were to, were to be honoring of biblical principle and biblical truth. And I believe that the, the greatest way to solve, if that's the right word, or to minimize the horrific things that are happening that will minimize injustice, that will minimize terror, that will minimize brutality, is, is to preach Jesus Christ and see people come to the Prince of Peace. We are, the, we are the antidote to our culture. We have the antidote. It's Christ within us, the hope of glory. Now more than ever, our light needs to shine brightly to a nation that's in desperate need. Jesus said, blessed are the people who argue well. No. Blessed are the peacemakers. And the, the way you make peace in individual hearts is introduce people to the Prince of Peace. And then they have Christ within them, the hope of glory. And then the Holy Spirit starts His work in them. And that work from the inside out is to transform their character in one of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Galatians 5.22. And so... Culture creep was destroying that nation. Culture creep is destroying ours. As we look at that, beware of spiritual principles. Um, be aware of them. Exodus chapter 20 is a place where 10 very important guidelines are. They are the 10... Trying to help you out there, right? Exodus 20. And it starts with, uh, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. You shall not have any idols. And then you should remember the Sabbath, keep it holy, honor your father and mother. And so if you remember those five, then the acronym CLAMS, you shall not covet, lie, adultery, murder, and steal. You got all ten. Because most people can't pass that pop quiz. And so we have the Ten Commandments, and in Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, as it's being explained, it says, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. 
but showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. Whoa. Does that mean I'm paying for my parents and grandparents' sin? Well, you have to harmonize Scripture together. The Bible basically says, no, you're responsible for your sin, they're responsible for theirs. But there's something to understand about spiritual DNA, as I call it. God created us with a spiritual DNA, and, and so he created us that as parents who want to instruct our children in righteousness and love of God, that it, it is fairly expedient to pass your faith on to your children and your children's children. How many of you had a Christian mom or dad or both? Let me see. How many had Christian grandparents? All right, so that faith passes generation to generation. And so it, righteousness is a teachable, translatable thing. I still have to make it my own faith, but I receive it from the generation before. Well, good news, bad news, that DNA that can pass righteousness down uh, is not uh, distinguishing. It can also pass unrighteousness down, and that's the point that's being made here. And so unrighteousness, sin, can pass from generation to generation to generation. We see that illustrated uh, with some of the kings. In uh, First Kings, sorry, Second Kings, chapter 15, verse 3, it says, Azariah did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father Amaziah had done. So that's passing from generation to generation, goodness and righteousness. But then you also see in First Kings 15, Abijam walked in all the sins of his father Rehoboam, which he had committed before him, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God like the heart of his great-grandfather David. So spiritual DNA passes down, whether it's righteousness or unrighteousness. And let me say, if there is ever a time that we need godly parents to pass along a relentless, undivided passion for God and for his word in this world, in God's ways, it is now. And when we dedicate little ones, I ask the congregation, do you pledge to come alongside and support these parents? I believe it is harder for godly parents to pass down a passionate, relentless, undivided love for God and his word. It's harder now than it's ever been, at least in our recent history. In part because of the evil that's pressing against it, in part because of the mindsets and cultural demeanor pressing against it, but also in part because of all the distractions. There are so many things usually fun things, good things that are competing for the attention and energy and time of your family and mine. It is, there's so much to spread our attention out and, and to have passionate devotion and relentless, undivided attention to God. It's just hard to come by. Don't fall to that. Stay passionate. Pass along from your children to your children's children. And as I say that, hopefully... All of us can think of a parent or a grandparent, someone in the family tree that we're thankful for that passed down God's loving kindness, that passed down God's truth and the love for God's word. But there are also many that I'm sure today are thinking of things that were passed down that weren't desirable, that you inherited pain or ungodliness, dysfunction or abuse. And for you, I want to bring a word of encouragement and an and an example from Scripture. And uh, the final point says, to those of you who what was coming down the pike toward you was not good, 
Are you destined and doomed to just pass it along to those that come after you? No. That last point says, be the shock absorber. And uh, that shock absorber, you know, from the world of automotives, and I'm, I haven't done mechanical work on a car since I bought a car when I was six, 17. I paid 200 bucks for it. It was a piece of junk, but we had to do a lot of work on it, right? Back in those days, you could still work on cars. Uh, but I have a picture of a shock absorber, and uh, Scott Davidson has a garage. He was here last night. I had to ask him, which is the top? So the blue one is the top, all right, the blue end. And a shock absorber, these are on a car. There's four of them or there's struts or whatever. But the way that works is that the top part is attached to sort of the body of the car and the bottom part is attached to like the what, Brian? The, the suspension. Thank you. All right. So the <laughs> next two minutes, Brian's going to tell us. <laughs> no. uh, so, so every road you ride on is not smooth as glass. All right. Uh, there are these things called speed bumps. Some of you haven't figured out yet why they're there. <laughs> but, you know, you're, you're like you, you ride over speed bumps, you ride over, you know, like in our neighborhood they're doing road work, so now you have to be careful to slow way down so you can go over the bump and up with it when you don't hit it, you know. And you drive over overpasses, a big old hunk of concrete out, and bam, you hit that, right? And like up, I'm from Cleveland, and there's potholes that are big enough to swallow your car, okay? And so when you, when you ride, all right, if you don't have shock absorbers, it would be, it'd be miserable. You wouldn't want to ride, Okay. That wasn't too bad. And so, so what a shock absorber does is it, it absorbs the shock of where you're going, where you've been, where you're going. To. And so it takes all that pressure, and, it, and it, it might be this big jolts. It only, it only passes on like that much. It absorbs the shock. Some of you going through life have, have inherited loads of poof, poof, poof from the generation before you. The invitation is for you to be the shock absorber generation. And while you absorb it, you don't pass much of it along. That's possible. Uh, a great example of that is a king named Hezekiah. And there were several kings in Judah's history who were shock absorber kings. There was Asa and Joash, Hezekiah and Josiah. All of them had ungodly fathers and sometimes fathers and grandfathers before them. But they didn't pass it on. They refused to say, I'm going to take the same immorality, the same dysfunction, the same pain, the same sin out of control. I'm going to take that and pass that along. Look at Hezekiah in chapter 2, verse 18. It came about in the third year of Hosea, the son of Elah, king of Israel. Okay, so we're talking about a king of Judah, but they just mentioned the king of Israel. Okay, another kingdom. That Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, became king. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Abby, the daughter of Zechariah. He did right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father, now this I have to explain that his father David done. David wasn't his father. David was his great-great-great-grandfather, several times removed. Fatherly line. He removed the high places, broke down the pillars, sacred pillars, cut down the Asherah, all uh, uh, instruments of idol worship. He also broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the sons of Israel burned incense to it, and it was called Neshtahan, or whatever. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that after him there was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor among those who were before him. That's an incredible resume. For he clung to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him wherever he went. He prospered, and he rebelled against the king of Syria, and he did not serve him. Hezekiah was an amazing shock absorber kind of person. His father Ahaz 
was one of those kings that allowed culture creep and literally worshipped pagan gods. And Ahaz took one of Hezekiah's brothers and sacrificed him on, a, on an, idol, uh, an altar of fire to a pagan idol. His father Ahaz sold the, the treasuries from the temple to try to buy peace with, this, with the king of Assyria, whose name was Tiglath-Pileser. And, and placating a foreign enemy is never a good foreign strategy then or now. And, uh, and so in the verse, verses right after this, uh, we see that there was a tragic, the tragic fall of Israel was right then at 722 B.C. and they were deported to a foreign nation by a foreign conqueror. Israel continued because, because again, Hezekiah was one of those reformers and the righteousness that he pursued exalted the nation and sustained it. Hezekiah had his own troubles Sennacherib was the king of Assyria, and he sent his, his uh, military chief of staff, if you will, Rabshakeh, uh, to deliver a threatening message to Hezekiah. He was holed up in the city, and they had the gates closed, and all the guards are up on top of the city, the people on the top of the, of the walls of the city. And he starts yelling out to the people, and he's, all these death threats, psychological warfare. And, and Hezekiah says, would you mind yelling in your native tongue? not what the peeps can understand. And Rabshakeh says, pardon my language, why should I not warn people who are doomed to eat their own dunk and dung and drink their own urine? Because they were going to make a siege against the city, no one in or out, and eventually they would starve to death or surrender, and that's what their fate was. Nasty stuff. And so he delivers, after he makes a big scene, delivers the letter to Hezekiah. And the Bible says Hezekiah was so distraught over this enemy, this crisis, that he took the letter and he took it into the house of the Lord and he spread it out before the Lord. God, I have this letter. He's weeping. I have these threats. You see what he wants to do. He wants to destroy us. God, I need you to help us. And he spread out before the Lord and he wept before the Lord and God heard his cry and God answered his cry. And I want to say to some of you who are in the biggest battle of your life right now, I don't know what you're facing, what's your enemy, what's your obstacle, what your trial is, but one of the best things you could do is find a place where you can get alone and pray and lay it out before the Lord and just pour your heart out, cry your heart out to God because God's ear is inclined to the heartache and the cry of his righteous people. Far too often I find when I've got a problem, I think about it and I get stressed about it. Anybody else get stressed about your problems? And I think about it some more and I talk about it some more and far too often, man, I, just, I need to pray about this. Hezekiah models for us to, to pour his heart out before the Lord. Well, sure enough, he was victorious there. And then you read a little more about Hezekiah and he comes down with a fatal illness and he's crying to God and saying, God, I wasn't done yet. And God does this amazing thing with him and he gives him 15 more years of life through this miraculous display of his power. Read the story. Now he did some foolish things. He showed the treasures of the temple to people from Babylon and it ended up costing him dearly. So we can see righteous people still make mistakes but overall the righteousness uh, was compelling people forward and Hezekiah was that shock absorber generation that did not, I mean his own dad killed his brother as a sacrifice. Didn't pass it along. And that's almost 3,000 years ago. 
And I'm thankful that there are shock absorbers now. I've got them in my family, and one is my dad. My dad uh, grew up, and his father was a, a violent alcoholic. If your dad was an alcoholic, I'm not sure. Some get violent, some get sleepy or sloppy or whatever. So much so that uh, one story my dad told, he didn't talk much about his family growing up. There were nine kids. His parents divorced in the 30s when divorce didn't happen. It was like a 2% divorce rate. And then one occasion, he had to wrestle a gun out of his father's hand. His father was drunk. He was about to kill his grandfather. And my dad saved his grandfather's life by taking the gun away. And I remember years ago, Joyce and I went home for Christmas, and the kids were probably early elementary age, five, eight years old. And uh, the holiday kind of fell over the weekend. And so we decided, well, Joyce, why don't you stay here with the kids up in Akron and Cleveland? And so I drove back uh, to Dayton to preach on Sunday and then go back. And so dad rode down with me and back one of our best conversations. And in that, I remember saying, Dad, I've, I have seen the sins of the parents visit on the children's children over and over again. I've spent so much time in counseling with people, and you see people say, well, my, my dad was an alcoholic. My mom, dad was unfaithful. And I, I promised myself I would not do that when I have my own family, and now I'm doing that. Same thing. It is so hard to not pass it along. And I said, how did there is no resemblance of what you grew up with in our home. How did that happen? And he said, I just determined to draw a line in the sand, and with God's help, I was not going to have that in our home. It wasn't a perfect home, not a perfect family, but, but that abuse and dysfunction, he was the shock absorber that absorbed that and didn't pass it on. And if you're here today and, and, and you, what you've inherited has not been good, you can be that shock absorber and not pass it on. There is biblical and contemporary example of that. And maybe you're here saying, well, yeah, but I've already passed on so much it's kind of too late. No, it's never too late. I tell people, you know, we need to be mindful that we are helping to write the biography of our kids' lives. And so, okay, maybe, maybe what you inherit, you've just been passing along, just been parent to child, boom. And, and, and wouldn't it be cool that in your kid's life, they said, but there was this time in my dad's life and he, he kind of made a commitment to him and God. And from that day forward, I could see the change. And I was a recipient of his commitment to God and to righteousness. And so to those of you that are overwhelmed because you've been beat up by the road before you, God can help you absorb that and not pass that on in your own life and the life of those you love. And uh, Hezekiah did not just a political reform, but a spiritual reform in the people. And it says they established a decree to circulate a proclamation throughout all Israel from Beersheba even to Dan that they should come to celebrate the Passover to the Lord God of Israel at Jerusalem for they had not celebrated it in great numbers as it was prescribed. So there was great joy in Jerusalem because there was nothing like this in Jerusalem since the days of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. Then the Levitical priest arose and blessed the people, and their voice was heard, and their prayer came to his holy dwelling place to heaven. And so Hezekiah instituted or reinstituted the Passover, and in the New Testament, Jesus kind of took the Passover and reworked that into the Lord's Supper, communion. So we thought it'd be good for us to, to close this service with communion, and if you didn't get the elements, if you'll raise your hand, your section leader will bring it to you. And Steve, if I could have one, I, I left mine in the back room. <laughs> This is how it works if you don't have one. Thanks.
The Apostle Paul, speaking of communion, said, I received from the Lord that which I delivered to you. Now the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and after he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And as you hold the piece of bread in your hand, it's to remind us of the body of Christ, not just his physical body that was torn on a cross, but that he said that we are now his body. We represent Jesus in this world. And the Bible says that as the body of Christ, we are to love one another and forgive one another and bear each other's burdens and rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And there's to be a sense of connection between us and unity among us. And I find that that is increasingly difficult in the American church with our busy lifestyles. And it's even more difficult in the large American church where it's far too easy to come, to sit, to smile, to get up and leave and not really be connected. We're like a collection of body parts, not a unified body. So would you bow your head with me for a moment of reflection that Paul told us to do whenever we take communion? And first of all, thank God for other Christians who have been a blessing in your life. Whether it was growing up in your life now, but Christians who have been a source of encouragement and love and strength and hope for you. Thank Him for that. If they're still in this life, pray a blessing over them. But this is also to be a time of introspection if, if indeed you feel that you are not as connected in the body as you need to be or ought to be. Ask God for the help, the passion, and the pathways to do exactly that, but to, to go through life together with other Christians. Not everybody here, but with a handful that we're all connected as one. Lord, we are so thankful for people in the body, in the church that have been there when we needed them. Their prayers, their love, their laughter, their encouragement, their company. We pray a blessing on them, God. We pray a blessing on Christian Life Center. And whether or not we are one nation under God, we can be one person under God and one church under God. And so we pray for a unity and a love at CLC to flow like never before for such a time as this. And a sense of connection with each other and compassion and care for each other as members of the body of Christ. We ask it in Jesus' name. Let's take the bread together. Likewise, Paul said, in the same thankful manner, he took the cup and he blessed it and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And Paul reminded us as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The cup speaks to us, the blood speaks to us of healing and forgiveness. If there is healing you need in your life, whether it's physical, emotional, mental, relational, go ahead and ask the great physician for that. Tell him where it hurts. Ask him for his healing help. The cup also speaks to us of forgiveness because he shed his blood that we could be forgiven. If there are things that trouble your conscience, whatever they might be, 
Feel free to confess those now because he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Take a moment. Lord, we are so grateful that when we confess our sins, you forgive us and you forget them. So we surrender our failures to you, God, and and repent of them and ask you for cleansing and your amazing grace. We also pray for healing, God. You know those who need a touch in their body physically. Lord, we pray that they would recover. Lord, you know those who are struggling, whether it's emotionally or a relationship that needs healing, maybe it's mental healing and well-being, those fruit of the Spirit that I spoke of. Lord, whatever the human heart, our human hearts need, we pray for healing and comfort and peace. God, not only that, we pray for healing for our nation. We pray that this nation would realize that Jesus is the Prince of Peace. As we turn our hearts to you, that's when we can be restored. That's when we can be comforted and healed and whole. And that's when your joy will be in us and our joy will be complete. And help us as a church to be a loving place that introduces people to the Prince of Peace. Help us as people to be peacemakers. And Lord, as the priests prayed a blessing on their people, I pray a blessing on each person who considers Christian Life Center their church home, that you will be in us and go with us and show yourself through us and that we will know the goodness of God. We ask it all with gratitude and praise in Jesus' name. Let's take the cup together. Before you go on to your holiday weekend, and we pray it's enjoyable and safe uh, and grateful, take a moment. I've asked Juan just to to play a few moments and uh, let the message sort of process for you. If there are things you need to pray about or bring to God in response before you get on with your busy day, feel free to do so. If not, pray a prayer for our nation. God bless you. Thanks for being here.